The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 93, and I'm your host, Lee Russell, and uh, Daniel, the cowboy that's never been caught, Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, and I have yet to be caught, so uh, yeah, that, that is that is pretty good. Yeah. So we're continuing our look at crime films, our very slow... <laughs> very slow 12-part <laughs> series, Yeah, our ver- which is going to take us like six months by the time we get done with it, because yeah. we can't fucking record. Yeah, yeah uh, that one. It was, it was funny... Uh, we're, we're going to have Mike Murphy from Badass's Boobs and Body Counts on for our Zodiac episode. He's like, at least give me two weeks notice. And it's like, that's not going to be a fucking problem, Mike. <laughs> that's not going to be a problem at all. <laughs> yeah, somehow somehow I think I think we'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> but we're doing that. We're, we're, we're crawling all the way to episode 100. And uh, 100 is going to be our commentary for Night of the Living Dead from 1968. But until then, we're just knocking off all kinds of interesting crime films and uh, we've had some really good ones so far and i think we got two really good ones tonight as well to talk about before we get into that i'd like to mention that if you did not notice on our facebook group they must be destroyed on site on facebook the single best way to get in contact with us by the way if you had never heard i am doing a little sub podcast i sort of caught this bug from uh, daniel and all of our sort of uh, british friends who do podcasts where they keep doing extra podcasts and perhaps too many podcasts Podcast. We're just pollinating podcasts into the wind at this point. Right. But this is uh, going to be a once-a-month thing. It's going to come out at the end of every month, and it's called Blood on the Tracks, and it's going to be a soundtrack podcast. It's just going to be a little sub-podcast under our TMBDOS radio subcategory, and it's just going to be me playing soundtrack and score music from movies that I like and talking a little bit about them and the episodes are only going to be about an hour long so it's not going to take up too much of your time and hopefully people will find them interesting it's something i've wanted to do for a while now but i've just hadn't found the time to uh, fully put the concept together but now i've got the first episode already recorded and going forward it's going to be one episode a month as i said and so look forward to that at the end of april the first episode will be out i'm excited for that will you be doing that in the uh, lee van teeth character no no, Lee Van Teeth okay. is only for the uh, for the Halloween shows. It's it's just okay. it's just. And what do you mean character? Uh, will your friend Lee Van Teeth be yeah. showing up to record that for He's you? He's going to take great offense at that. I mean, I, I uh, found no, no, I... I found the last real Wolfman of rock and roll. <laughs> uh, he, he's not going to like that. Uh, well, uh, he should come visit me in Michigan then, maybe with a hammer. <laughs> Lee Van Teeth believes in nonviolence. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. okay. He, he, he is a child of the 60s. But yeah, so uh, look forward to that. And now we're going to get into comments. We only have one from our friend Mike Murphy, who we already mentioned. And this is in relation to our previous episode on Fargo. He said, at any point in this episode, do you talk about Fargo? 25 minutes in and you're talking about superhero movies for fuck's sake. Then he goes on to say, 
Well, I really enjoyed this episode. Having a Brit on always makes any show feel more intelligent. One thing no one spoke of was Carter Burwell's score, which I appreciated you all closing the episode with. Lastly, what? This isn't actually based on true events? How dare they? Actually, we did talk about Carter Burwell's score. We didn't go in depth about it, but we did mention that we liked it at the very least. I know we did, at least twice. Yeah. Yes, Carter Burwell's score is amazing. Mm. Done. I don't know that I have much more to say than that. Yeah, I I don't know if I could put... In, I, I guess maybe this doesn't bode well for my soundtrack show that I couldn't put into words what I liked about Carter Burwell's score, perhaps, in more detail. <laughs> I mean, I guess it does have that sort of, you know, Lawrence of Minnesota kind of quality to it, where it's it's this very uh, sonorous kind of score that, you know, tries to evoke the landscape and the kind of moral heft of kind of what's going on in the story in these kind of, like, broad musical sense so right. you know it, it definitely i mean again i think i mentioned on the on the show that i was listening to that soundtrack to that score while i was driving to and from work over the winter mm-hmm. and it feels very um it's very winter driving kind of music yeah it's very foreboding in that sense of where you feel like at any moment i'm going to skid off into a ditch and die a fiery death <laughs> that's that's the that's the kind of score it is and i think that's the brilliance of it really yeah yeah I will say that after listening to that, I went right back and started listening to his score for Blood Simple. Just got stuck in my head after after we did the Fargo episode. I went back and started listening to that again. So, well, nice. Yeah, yeah. I see. Okay, that. so that's all for comments. Now we can move on to what we've watched in the last little while. I don't have anything this week. I'll come back with some stuff next week after I've uh, fully formed my thoughts on them. Yeah, I've got a couple things I want to mention. The one thing is that I uh, went on a, after we watched Fargo, just to, because on Twitter we got into a little bit of conversation about favorite right. Coen Brothers films, and uh, I No Country for Old Men is on Netflix, so I rewatched that, and uh, that's as great <laughs> as I ever thought it was. <laughs> you know, uh, No Country for Old Men may be, I mean, it, it's up there as, as one of my favorite uh, Coen Brothers films, if not my absolute favorite uh, Coen Brothers film. I think it is uh, up there with Fargo or Blood Sample for me. I think it, I don't know, it's something we could probably yeah. discuss at some point. I think uh, I'd love to do that one alongside Mystery Road if we ever get that around to a... Mystery Road. It would be really interesting to do that. those two films as a, as a uh, kind I, of a I almost want to do a three, three-way episode there where we have Mystery Road, No Country for Old Men, and Lone Star. Oh, <laughs> that would be our first six-hour podcast episode. Yeah, I think so. But uh, when is the last time we did three movies? Uh, I, I can't remember. Uh, we did one of the six comedy series. We did three. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> those are easy to brush off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be a little bit different than trying to do uh, three like Western epics in one uh, in one go. Right, right. So yeah, I won't uh, talk too much about that. But uh, I also did uh, see a Serious Man, which I'd never seen before. But have you seen a Serious Man? No. That's a really interesting film. Um, I didn't get nearly as much out of it as I think a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of critical acclaim has gone to that for, um, you know, kind of delving into sort of religious issues and sort of, you know, it's kind of the, it's kind of, if, if uh, Oh Country, uh, no, pardon me, um, if uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou was sort of the Coens doing the uh, Odyssey in a right. film, this is sort of them doing the Book of Job in a film. That's um, what I heard, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's sort of interesting. It's well shot. It's well acted. I'm not sure I really appreciated how 
it ended. I'm not sure it's really trying to say anything beyond like, boy, this guy's life really sucks. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I would definitely have to revisit it, particularly kind of like listen to somebody, listen to people who did really get something out of it and kind of like maybe maybe in conversation I can kind of see it. But for me, it's a little bit more of a lark. It feels like it's sort of a fun movie. I didn't dislike it, but um, I didn't think it was, you know, anywhere near as good as something like Fargo or uh, No Country. Um, for, yeah. for my taste, for uh, for what the Coens are, are capable of, it feels a little bit more like just a genre exercise for them. Right. That's what I'll eventually get around to it. It's just, uh, especially since Jack did sort of recommend it. Yeah. He he likes it a lot, so I I, I eventually will get around to it. It's just on, honestly the the, <laughs> the 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 fact that it's basically a retelling of the Book of Job that kind of killed my interest for quite a while. Sure. It's just like okay, I already know that story. Yeah, I get it. God's a dick and Job's stupid. So there you go. But. Yeah, well, in the book of Job is a, I mean, the, the actual sort of story of the book of Job and like where that story comes from is a much more sort of complex dynamic about like in-group and out-groups and um, racial dynamics and, and, you know, kind of the morality and, and who is Job de- descended from and all that sort of thing. I mean, there is this kind of rich liturgical history of studying the book of Job. And so mm. um, that story is actually, I mean, the, the, the context around that story is more interesting than the story itself. And I want to think, I mean, I want to say there's something deeper going on in the serious band, but I mean, I watched it once, kind of late at night. It was e- it was an easy watch for me, um, but it was not, I don't know, I'm, I might have to revisit it to really kind of dig into it. And I would really interested to talk, talk to Jack about it, um, because I know he really I, likes it, and... I just, I just don't, I just don't see it on a first watch. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm just a little bit blind to it. But after, after Jack listens to this episode, I anticipate some Twitter back channel uh, discussions. <laughs> oh, what do you mean? It's not like we have an ongoing chat with all our friends where we talk about stuff. Certainly, that's not something that's happening all the time, right? No, 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 no. Yeah, I got two more. I'll just uh, mention real quick. Uh, both of these are on sure. Netflix. I did see uh, In Like Flint. For the first time, oh yeah, I uh, was literally just looking for something to watch. I'm like, oh, '60s spy parody, and uh, that was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, kind yep. of a interesting uh, sort of socio political moment where that film was made, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. really goofy fun. It's got um, what is his name, Jay Lee Cobb, who I know from um, Twelve Angry Men as the, yeah. as the racist guy in Twelve Angry Men, and he's a lot of fun in this. Yeah, just sort of a fun late 60s spy movie. I mean, I think we need to do some spy movies at some point. Just because it's kind of amazing how the spy movie was only, like, ever serious for, like, two years. And then it just went to complete parody after that. And uh, it's it's funny, like, to see, like, Austin Powers made 30 years early in, in, in like, Flint. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is essentially yeah. what that is. Yeah, I mean, James Coburn just sort of, he just carries that with his charm. Like, that was just a vehicle just made for that guy. Yeah. And you can sort of see that sort of idea sort of gets ripped off a little bit in, actually, I can't remember if that was before or after assignment in Beirut or appointment in Beirut, whatever. Um, it's the same general time frame. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, um, Rebus as we'll call it. <laughs> yeah. Rebus must well go Rebus, but, uh, you know, it, it's got that sort of same, like Rebus sort of touches on some of that, spy parody stuff to a certain degree in its own little way well it's it's like that era this stuff was just everywhere i mean you know and so it's a little bit like Mm -hmm. you know it's it doesn't have to be a strict spy movie to kind of oh it's set in a casino and it's got this a bunch of guys in suits kind of carrying small guns around and so therefore it just kind of feels like a spy movie 
Yeah. It's just kind of funny how pervasive it was during this particular moment, and then it just kind of completely disappeared. And, right. Um, yeah, it's it's just kind of it's more it's more just kind of an interesting little moment in pop culture than like the film I, I, being interesting I, itself, you know. I blame Roger Moore because once his movies started up, basically they took the parody back and put it in the actual James Bond series. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's certainly fair too. And then the uh, the last thing I'll mention is uh, this is another film. It's very rare that I see a film on Netflix that I've literally never heard of that isn't mm-hmm. you know like a new or straight to video or something. Uh, but this was one I'd never heard of. I saw it on Netflix and I hit play on it, and uh, it's called Eyewitness. It's from 1981. Um, it's got William Hurt as a lead. He plays a janitor who kind of sort of witnesses a murder, but not really. He kind of has fallen in love with this TV reporter played by Sigourney Weaver. And this is her first role after Alien, actually. Oh, really? He kind of uses the fact that he might know something about this murder as a way of kind of getting close to her. And then a sort of romance happens, and they end up kind of being chased by the killers sort of thing. It's, it's, uh, I'm making it sound a little bit generic, and it is a little bit generic, but it was a pretty decent little film. It's definitely of that, like, sort of genre made in 1981. There's some really creeptastic dating advice that you should not take in this film. Um, (laughs) there's also, I'll mention, there is a, uh, a moment with a dog. Someone poisons a dog in the film, and uh, oh. so if that's something, I mean, that's just something I like to warn people about because I mean, that kind of came out of nowhere a little bit. Um, yeah, and, you know, if you're if you're an animal lover, then that's that that can be a little bit disturbing. So I hate to ruin that for people who might um, want to see the film, but it is probably worth knowing that it's in there, um, so you don't go in completely blind. Um, but it's about ninety minutes long. It's a fun little goofy movie. I'd recommend it. You know. Have a beer and, uh, and watch young Sigourney Weaver be charming with William Hurt. Oh, yeah. Well, I like both of those things. Uh, so I like old Sigourney Weaver as well. So yeah. there you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's also James Woods is in it. There's oh. some, he, he, he plays this uh, racist shithead who may or may not <laughs> which, be a killer. So, which yeah. he does very well. Which he does very well in real life as well. So, you know, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure he was even acting in this one. No, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, it's a it's it's a fun little movie. It's it's uh, definitely worth uh, checking out. Would even fit into our remit of crime films today, actually. So I did I did watch it. And I was like, hey, we should throw this in at some point. And then I'm like, no, nah, it's fine. It's not it's not really worth talking about so much, you know, in in terms of our format. But it's a fun movie, so uh, go check it out. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think that's the cool thing, uh, especially whenever we do these crime films. You and I seem to really start digging deep and finding all kinds of other shit on the side that's related. <laughs> so, well, last time I went like straight up. I'm just gonna I'm gonna watch a bunch of noir that I didn't even you know just just old films that I've just never seen. Just kind of stuff I'd always been wanting to check out, and uh, so I kind of made it an effort last time. This time I've been a little bit less like, oh yeah, now I have to like make myself watch a whole bunch of other crime films. But it came up. I didn't know anything about it. I just saw Sigourney Weaver and William Hurt and went, I'm down. Play. Yeah, <laughs> that sells it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to check that out. Definitely. In, in 1981, you know, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I would, you know, anytime I see something from 1981 that's on Netflix or whatever, that's uh, something that I that I don't recognize. It's almost like a, a go-to, like a gimme. I'll give it 10 minutes just to see what the thing is about, you know. You got young Sigourney Weaver just starting to kick ass and take names, and then you got fucking peak period James Woods at the same time. So yep. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. We're gonna check that out. Yeah, it's actually. Um, I know you haven't seen uh, this, but uh, it's it's sort of the uh, the sort of more mainstream version of Body Heat in a way. Okay, Body Heat is unquestionably the better film um, because that's like a, a real like 
fucking movie, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, but eyewitnesses definitely. It's it's. I think it's made the same year, and uh, man, it's just it, it was fun. It was fun. So check it out. That's not all, all I right. watched, but that's all I'm going to talk about. <laughs> right on. Fair enough. Hello and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, 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 <laughs> and he said, bark, 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 and she said, bark, 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 bark. that's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner, the other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> Boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, this is the Doomed Show. Is available on Hello Doomed Show. Podomatic. Com and Doomed Movie Thon. Com. Hello, hello. This is the Doomed Show. Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark. If you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcast via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off.
All right, so we'll move on now to our first film we're going to be covering tonight, and it's going to be The Driver from 1978. 20th Century Fox presents Two Men on Opposite Sides of the Law. Ryan O'Neill, Bruce Dern, and between them, Isabella Johnny. Three loners playing a ruthless game none of them could afford to lose. In The Driver. Ryan O'Neill is the driver. My line of work is kind of hard to come by. His reputation, the best wheelman in the city. Did you ever get caught on one of your jobs? Hasn't happened yet. Bruce Dern is the detective. I'm very good at what I do. His reputation, the toughest cop in the city. Driving the car, yet you didn't identify him. Do you got a reason? I just don't like you. Well, you get out of my town because you go out on one more job and I'm gonna nail you. You might be getting too big. Two men driven by their need to prove they were the best. How are you gonna get downstairs? I really like chasing you. Sounds like you got a problem. <laughs> better at this game than you are you win you make some money i win you're gonna do 15 years to them the money the law even their lives no longer counted you don't care about the money might even send it to him who was best was all that mattered and we've got the winning run on first you've been set up you know to break the cop the driver was willing to risk it all to break the driver the cop was willing to break the law. Boy, I applaud! It'll cost you two years. Ryan O'Neill, Bruce Dern, Isabella Johnny, The Driver. A ruthless game between two legends. Written and directed by Walter Hill. Starring Ryan O'Neill, yes, Ryan O'Neill from Love Story <laughs> as the driver, uh, the excellent Bruce Dern as the detective, uh, our old friend Isabella Edjani as the player, Ronnie Blakely as the connection, Matt Clark as Red Plains Clothesman, Felice Orlandi as Gold Plains Clothesman, Joseph Walsh as Glasses, Rudy Ramos as Teeth, Denny Mako as Exchange Man, and Frank Bruno as The Kid. And I'll throw it over to you, Daniel, for a synopsis. Sure. Uh, none of these films have much of a 
plot that's worth going. I, I didn't put a lot of energy into describing these, so um, I'm taking this one from the Wikipedia page. So my Fair apologies enough. for not uh, putting in a little bit more effort for this and throwing in some jokes. But here you go. The driver, real name unknown, is a quiet man who has made a career out of stealing fast cars and using them as getaway vehicles and big-time robberies all over Los Angeles. On the driver's trail is the detective, Bruce Dern, a conceited and similarly nameless cop who refers to the driver as Cowboy. The player, a beautiful, mysterious woman, witnesses the driver speeding away from casino robbery but denies having seen him when questioned by the police. Since the driver has never been caught, the detective is obsessed with catching him. The detective goes to ever-increasing lengths to capture Cowboy, ultimately enlisting a criminal gang to set up a bank job in hopes of baiting and trapping the driver, even if that plan threatens to wreck the detective's career. Yeah, pretty much covers the yeah, entire I mean, that, plot. That's, of the... The, that's the story of the film. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is uh, interesting because this is a movie we both watched for the first time in 2016, and it made both of our best of lists. It, it did indeed. Um, I'd also like to mention, um, just you mentioned Ryan O'Neill. Um, this is our second time covering a Ryan O'Neill film. Uh, the first one he was in uh, the Zero Effect. That's right, he was, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, he's he's yeah. he's the bad guy in the Zero Effect. So. Yeah. Um, this is our second time covering an Isabel Ajani film because she was in uh, the mm-hmm. 1979 uh, Nosferatu. I don't yes. think we've covered Bruce Dern in anything, although we did sort of mention Django Unchained when we did our Django episode, and he has a bit more mm-hmm. that. So that would probably yeah. be the closest we got to uh, to covering a, a, another Bruce Dern film. So that yeah, <laughs> yeah this is. A, I always like to say, oh yeah, this is the second time we've done a Ryan O'Neill film, and we've still not done anything with Tom Cruise. So you know. <laughs> I'm not too uh, flustered by that, though, uh, to be honest. So I, I will mention right off the top that this is sort of Walter Hill's homage to John Pierre Melville's uh, Le Samurai. It, it's very much kind of a take on those sort of existentialism-ridden French New Wave crime films to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And and it's it is very clearly kind of an homage to Le Samurai in plot structure and in just in the characters. Saying that, I'll throw it over to you first for your sort of uh, initial thoughts on this. Has this improved or diminished at all since you first uh, watched it and put on your best of list? It's it was less surprising on a second watch. Um, in the uh-huh. sense of, I think that one thing that I really appreciated. I mean, on, on a first viewing, it's just so spare yet intricate. You know, it's so character based that it just sort of drew me in. I hate when people use the word you like modify the word unique with adjectives, but um, it is <laughs> it is very unique. You know, <laughs> or quite yeah. unique in the way that it, you know, in the way that it's structured. I kept thinking of um, this is sort of the better version of the Friends of Eddie Coyle. <laughs> the first time I watched it, in a okay. way, it sort of has that same kind of uh, grittier, you know, kind of crime movie sort of feel. Um, kind it's of, got that. It's got that low-level criminal element right. interaction. Yeah. Know. It's got that sort of... Uh, I mean, it's kind of funny. Well, some of this I'll just repeat when we get to Drive, unfortunately. But yeah. these, are, these are kind of similar films in a way. Rewatching it two weeks ago, because we were going to record this last week and then we didn't. Um, I, I rewatched this twice for the uh, podcast. And rewatching it previously, I had kind of... Uh, on the second watch through, I guess I should say... I kind of was like, okay, I've seen this before. It's you know, it's fine. And then rewatching it again last night, it kind of had come back up for me again. So it is kind of it is interesting how I've kind of gone through a little bit of a, I've I mellowed on it, and then it just kind of came right back to like, no, this is a really really phenomenal film. I think that it it's a little bit clearer that it is just kind of a small story that it's not really doing very much other than just kind of telling this very simple story. Right. On a rewatch, you know, when when all the kind of tricks that the film has to play on you have already been played, and uh, so it's a little bit harder to kind of see it in this kind of bigger picture existential 
kind of question. Whereas I think something mm-hmm. like Fargo kind of rises the more you watch it. You know, this kind of like it, it just kind of it's just done what it's done and, it, and it's over. I still think this is a really, really phenomenal film. I really think anybody who hasn't seen it should definitely see it. It's got some really amazing car chases in it. Um, some yeah. of the best stunt driving, I mean, anywhere, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And uh, some really great performances. I, I really like Ryan O'Neill in it. I think I liked Ryan O'Neill more on the second and third watchings than I did on the first watching. Because once you kind of know where it's going, it's like, oh yeah, this is... It's really his movie, and it's really... If you don't believe his character is doing what he, what he's doing, then you're not going to buy the film at all. Because some of right. the decisions he makes are just kind of bizarre, except like, well, this is just who this guy is, you know? So, mm-hmm. But yeah, really, uh, really enjoy the film. Uh, I really like Bruce Dern in it. I really like Reggiani. Um, and that was, she was the reason I, I watched it the first time, honestly. Yeah. Because after I'd seen Nosferatu, I'm like, what else had she been in? And then I saw, oh, I know that film. So I watched it for her. And I think she, she's phenomenal. Um, she hasn't given enough to do is kind of the big problem, but that's always that's, the problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah, this was her first Hollywood role, too. Yeah. This was her first was. Hollywood film. She'd, um, done, she'd done some stuff in France, but this was like her first big, like, thing, you know? Yeah, I will say it has improved for me. Uh, I, I've watched it twice since for the podcast, and I've actually watched it a couple times since since I uh, first mentioned it on, on our Best Of, anyway. I like it a lot more now. I do see some flaws, and even then, seeing some flaws in it, I, I still like it more. So <laughs> if, sure. that says something for it. O'Neill, I tend to buy him. I see a lot of criticism online as, as I sort of dig deeper into it. People saying he doesn't sell his character, that he's uh, he's not Steve McQueen. And Steve McQueen was the original guy that Wat- Walter Hill wanted for this role. And McQueen turned it down because it's like, I don't want to do car chase movies anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and yes, I you can do. Kinda, yeah, and I can kind of see that criticism because uh, O'Neill's kind of different than Steve McQueen. He doesn't have that sort of weight and gravitas to his to his character that a, a McQueen does. He doesn't have that McQueen kind of stare, that steely kind of stare that, that you kind of expect. O'Neill, when he's staring at a guy, he looks kind of sad almost. You, you kind of look at his eyes, his eyes are kind of a little open, a little wider, you know, they're, they're, they, they seem a little sad. But after a couple of rewatches, I kind of felt like, man, he just kind of pities all these lower level criminals who are trying to fuck with him. <laughs> well, he's this he's this guy i mean i i think what i really love about his performance is that he i'm I'm glad he isn't like the steely badass guy yeah he's got this very i don't want to say warm i mean sad is a really good uh, it's kind of he's got a, like almost a hangdog kind of impression right to, to, right. to his eyes it's like he's still mourning the loss of Alan McGraw or something. You know? oh. <laughs> like in his background, he's still like, man, Alan McGraw died of cancer. That's, you know, really sad for me. Then I became the best getaway driver in L.A. <laughs> yeah, it's a sequel. It's a love story. That's what we're watching. <laughs> he's, he's got this like, there's no, there's just no bullshit quality. You know, he's, he's yeah. really good at what he does. He is happy to do it, but he, he wants to get paid for it. He has his principles. I mean, it is sort of like this is sort of the I mean, if you think about like the transporter and all those other things, you know, it's the same kind of like he has his rules that he has to follow. You don't follow his rules. He's not going to do his, you know, because he's the best. And these films are always about that. One day I want to see a film about a really shitty getaway driver, you know, (laughs) who's like, I do it for I do it for 500 bucks. It's fine. I'll get you there. But like, you know, that's kind of what I see. That would be a film about the kid. That, yeah, no, exactly, I would... exactly. Yeah. I think for me, what I love about Ryan O'Neill is the fact that he's a little more of an everyman, and he's he's yeah. unassuming. You know, you don't get this sense of you know, oh, he's 
implacable badass. I mean, he, when I mean, there's a scene where you think he's about to get shot. I mean, you think he's you know, yeah. because like, oh, he doesn't carry a gun and all that sort of thing. It's like, no, no, I I carry a gun. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean yeah, I don't just, carry a gun? He just doesn't like to use them. That's right. All. Exactly. I mean, he's he's. But but I mean, if it was you know Steve McQueen. You you kind of have no question. Oh yeah, this guy's gonna get out of this because like of course he's fucking gonna get out of it. He's Steve fucking McQueen, you know. Ryan O'Neill, you get a sense of like this this could be a very different movie from here on out, you know. And I mean, if McQueen was in this, I think he'd kind of dominate the criminals to the point where you wouldn't buy that they would fuck with him at any point. The the criminals in this, the second raiders that he is sort of paired up with, they try to fuck with him. Like they actively try to fuck with him and try to intimidate him. And it just doesn't work. They find out that he's a lot tougher than he actually looks on sort of a odor uh, appearance. There's that part where uh, the character Teeth, the Latino uh, guy, where he actually shows up at the at, at his apartment and it's tries to intimidate him. Scary Latino guy number one. Yeah. <laughs> if if well, you have a Hispanic last name in this film, you're a bad guy. <laughs> that's yeah. one well, I think of the... that's. I think that's one of the flaws of this is that although Walter Hill is going for that sort of French uh, existential crime film thing, he doesn't fully pull it together in that direction where these characters become more symbols than anything else. So a lot of the background character of them is kind of lost and it's, it's very much just stripped down bare bones. So sometimes these people come out as more stereotypes than they do actual characters to a certain degree anyway yeah there's that great scene where teeth comes up to uh, the driver and tries to intimidate him and he just punches him right down the fucking stairs (laughs) (laughs) well he he punches him first and then it's like you know i'm gonna forget you did that and he punches him again just straight down the stairs yeah it's a great little moment because it's like no don't don't fuck with me and um you know he's he's a guy who lives simply i mean even um the detective kind of comes up and who says, you know, he doesn't, he lives in a tiny little studio apartment. He's, mm-hmm. he's got no real hobbies or interest. I mean, all he does is he does his job. He, he drives and he, he goes to the bar every now and then, you know, and that's yeah, he's, kinda... he's, I mean, you, you get the sense that he's got a plan and he's been banking his money five years down the road or something. That's when he's going to cash out and he's going to, you know, maybe do something else with his life. But right now he's just in this, these sparse, shitty apartments and hotel rooms and motel rooms. And that is very much directly lifted from Le Samurai. Yeah. The, the hitman in that film, he's the top of his game. He makes the best money. But he's living in this shitty little fucking apartment. And all he has, honestly, that's of any interest in his apartment is a bird in a cage. And that's it. I mean, it's, it is kind of like there is this sort of man-painting element to this, right? Where mm-hmm. it is kind of like, oh, look at... I'm the best at what I do, and I'm surrounded by all these fuck-ups, and look at me be all sad about my $20,000 I made in, right. you know, 15 minutes, you know, sort of. Uh, I, I mean, there there is kind of an element of that, which isn't necessarily a problem. I mean, that's just what the film is. I think, mm-hmm. in a way, more interesting is, the more interesting angle is the way that uh, the driver interacts with the other two kind of major characters. I mean, you know, it's easy to kind of look at like teeth and, and glasses and, and those kind of guys and see them as like, okay, they're, they're kind of just caricatures. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the detective is a really amazing character. And I think that also um, the player, um, Johnny, um, those, those uh, the driver's relationships with those two characters is really like defining for him because, you know, he knows that he's being set up 
by the detective. Right. Like, I mean, the detective even just comes to him and just goes, like, I mean, A, the detective is, uh, I mean, Bruce Dern is fucking phenomenal in this, right? Yeah. You can tell that he went outside of what Walter Hill wanted for him in this, because Walter <laughs> Hill's trying to play in these, like, broad, symbolic caricatures. And Bruce Dern, he's just, like, a fully, he's actually probably the one full fleshed out character in the film he's trying to go for like everybody else has this kind of very spare reserved flat acting style and bruce dern mm-hmm. is not doing that at all he's coming no. in and he's being the like shit kicker cop you know yeah which i mean honestly makes him more relatable i mean he's probably the biggest villain of the film in a lot of ways yeah and yet he's sort of the most watchable just because i mean he's he's very mercenary I mean, he's talking to the other cop and he's like you know look this yeah, I mean, there's no like sense of like, oh, we got to get this guy because he's doing terrible things, and like we've got justice has to be served. It's like, it's a game, man. Come on, that's what that's yeah. what we do. We're playing a game with these guys, and I mean, he he literally approaches. I mean, he can't get uh, the driver to show up. Basically, you know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, the driver's like, I'm not dealing with these fucking idiots anymore. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just walks in and goes like, Look, dude, like you know you want to do this just so we can like you know, play our little game of cat and mouse. And uh, they yeah. do. It's, it sets up kind of the final third of the film very, very nicely. Um, but, uh, you know, I love Bruce Dern in this. He's so he's so much fun. I mean, he's he's kind of the, the one character you kind of watch and just, I just like smile whenever he's on screen, you know? Yeah, he's such a fucking asshole, man. And the way he treats his fellow cops, he just treats them as more pieces to play on the board, you know? It's like right. the, the guy's coming, he, he basically just tells them, listen, I'm the major player on this board. You're just a small fucking fry fish that I'm letting tag along. So shut your mouth and let me do my thing. And maybe you'll get some of the glory once I catch the driver. <laughs> but the, but his, his buddy cop there, the, the other cop on his team is like the realistic pragmatic guy. who was like, you're really going outside the bounds of what's legal and you're going to get us all fucking shit canned. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a really uh, kind of fascinating dynamic because he's just, a, he's just playing a game and then he gets yeah. the driver to kind of play in the game with him. And then it turns out, well, kind of nobody wins in the end. You know? right. um, the same, pretty much the same dynamic and heat years later with yep. Pacino and De Niro, right? It's pretty much exactly the same thing to a certain degree. The way you describe, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the cop and the criminal are two sides of the same coin. This has never right. been done in a film before. Um, I'm not, <laughs> you know, describing it in words. I mean, it is kind of funny. Like, again, both of these films kind of have this problem where if you just kind of describe what happens, it just sounds really generic. And yet, you know, on screen as sort of portrayed in the film through the magic of cinema, um, it just sort of works, and it works because the performances and the direction and and uh, such are kind of like giving it life. Um, yeah, much more so than this kind of generic thing. Because I mean, it really is just in how these two actors are playing it with each other. Yeah, and um, I think maybe my only other real letdown, and I think we we already hinted on Isabella Johnny basically is given nothing to do like you you get the like she does give a pretty decent performance even though she is playing that flat style as well where you get the sense that she likes like she's a gambler she likes flirting with danger and that's kind of what the driver excites her but although they never do the cliched love angle thing between the two either yeah Um, i mean you would you would be you would be amazed that there's not like a love triangle here like that would be if this film were like 30 minutes longer, 
you know, Bruce Dern and Ryan O'Neill would both be trying to get with her. And she would be well, like stuck in the middle between the two of them or something. Um, that well, would be a that... much that would be a much worse film. I'm not saying that. Yeah, and I mean, I'll I'll throw a spoiler out here. I mean, you know, a <laughs> uh, 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 almost forty year old film. Isabella Johnny's character is uh, essentially hired by the handler of the driver to be an alibi for him, so he can, he can get out of a police lineup, and so both the detective and the driver sort of are trying to sort of manipulate her to their side. Uh, the player is, seems fairly obviously much more inclined to stick with the driver because he interests her. And there's that scene where they're up there in, in her place and they're talking after he pays her off or whatever for uh, not riding him out on the lineup. And the detective calls up and he's coming up. And in a, I think, honestly, in a lesser film, they would have played this as the love triangle where the detective would have ended up being the guy she mentions that pays her bills once a month. Oh yeah. Visits yeah, yeah. her. Yeah. Cause she, she explains her position to the driver. Like I needed the money because, uh, the guy who's keeping me as his mistress isn't, pl- isn't paying the bills. <laughs> right. Late. Yeah. No, yeah. I didn't even think about that angle. Yeah, no, it would be very easy to just play it as, and then the cops actually dirty and he's got this girl on the side and he's been paying her right. bills off of like money. He's stealing from, uh, you know, the criminals or whatever whatever yeah but yeah isabel johnny's not given much ronnie blakely is really kind of not given anything she just has a horrible death because of her loyalty to the driver and that's about all she really gets which is which is sad because actually isabel johnny and, and ronnie blakely are both really interesting characters like you can see when uh, ronnie Bl- blakely first meets the driver in the bar to talk about the latest job and all that. She smiles at him. Like, it's it's more than business for her, where she actually likes him, right. you know? You can see there's something else going on there, and that's never really fleshed out, which is kind of unfortunate. Like, this, this movie has no room for human relationships and nuances like that. It's much more, again, just symbolic kind of characters all sort of rushing towards a finish you know well and i mean it's not really a a a, a shocker to find that oh well who are the characters who are the most the least fleshed out oh it's the two women in the film yeah <laughs> you know? like, uh, that's always the way it is right well i mean even um cheryl rainbow smith who is a exploitation actress apparently she had a fairly major part in this film that was just like totally cut out and left on the cutting room floor and apparently there was actually more of a love angle in this between Isabella Johnny and Ryan O'Neill that was cut out of it as well, where they actually shared a kiss and stuff like that. Apparently some of the trailers for this show them actually kissing at one point. Oh, that's interesting. And it was, yeah, and it was just kind of left out. Like it, Walter Hill just like totally stripped. I mean, the film, is, the film is 91 minutes long too. Mm-hmm. Roughly, I mean, what, 20 minutes? At least 20 minutes are just car chase sequences. Yeah. Um, if not more, I mean, it's probably closer to, to 30 when you think about, like, how much of it is in that last third. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is, in a sense, it is just sort of a delivery system for these kind of amazing car chase sequences. Yeah. Um, with this sort of very spare European crime film. Existential, I'm putting that in quotes because I don't think this is particularly existential. That's, that's I don't, I don't think I, there's I, I don't think there's enough depth to this to really, like, that's, rise to that's, that level. There, there's no... There's no meat on the bone, you know. It was sort of the sort yeah. of the big problem. Um, uh, it's yeah. it's very effective as cinema, but then it really doesn't quite 
have anything that it's really trying to say about these people other than sort of a genre exercise. Yeah, uh, I mean, that. I think Walter Hill was looking to shoot for something bigger, and he just kind of missed the mark slightly. But at the same time, he still put together this like really slick, interesting action film that really engages you, and you've got those really great car chases. Although I will say, Ryan O'Neill, for like being the best getaway driver ever, he makes a lot of fucking noise whenever he gets away. Like, <laughs> these abandoned L.A. streets that he's driving down, if he had just picked up the criminals and then dropped them off at the next bus stop no cop would ever look for him because no one would hear him. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, he, he peels out every time he starts a car, it seems. Like, even when he he takes the uh, uh, Glasses uh, escape truck there when, when they have their final confrontation, he, he peels out for no reason at all, just because. <laughs> well, I mean, how do you know it's a car chase movie unless people were peeling out all the time? That's just, right. come on. It's 1978, and, uh, man. That's, that's and, what and, you do. Yeah, there, and, there was no way, that's how cars worked in the seventies. Like you couldn't just put it in gear and drive. Like you had to peel out. That's just you know, how it worked. <laughs> tire tire sales were an all time high apparently in the nineteen seventies. But uh, yeah, tell tire, me, tire but... tread and cocaine were inversely proportional <laughs> in the seventies. That was the entire economy. Cocaine. Yeah. Uh, and way, really the, wide lapels on people's jackets. Oh shit! Yeah, shit! Yeah. Uh, although, was, although uh, speaking of fashion, don't you love that hat she's wearing uh, in the last uh, towards the end of the film? But that's another thing, though. Hey, how can I look inconspicuous in this in this place where the cops are looking for me? Oh, I'll put on a hat. I mean, it's 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 trying to do the Dewar thing, right? It's trying to put her in sort of the uh, the Bacall role. It's right. trying to give her that sort of like updated forty style. Because it's a crime film, and so it's like noir, and so it's, therefore, we've got, she's got to be a femme fatale, but she's not, I mean, structurally, she's not a femme fatale, no. and she's not oh. given anything like that to do in the film, you know? I mean, oh, she's oh. kind of just the bait. <laughs> I mean, yeah, know? yeah. Although it would have helped if she, you know, maybe changed her suit, because I'm pretty sure Bruce Dern was smart enough to know, hey, we should be looking for her, because she's also been in contact with the driver, and the driver's probably going to use her against me. <laughs> so... Right. I just want to mention: Does Glasses look like like a third-rate Clarence Boddicker to you? <laughs> oh, he does. He, it's, yeah. it's very much that. I mean, I I love it when um, bad guys in movies have like thick glasses. It's just sort of yeah. one of those. Uh, I mean, Brick Top is another example of this, obviously. But there is this sort of like very unassuming. You know, like it's hard to look like a tough guy when you got like big Coke bottle glasses, and yet right. he does sort of pull it off. I mean, but he doesn't. It, it feels more realistic to me yeah. when when these guys are not you know these kind of it's not like the rock standing there you know and being like super badass or like yeah. a steve wing kind of guy it's just like yeah he's a guy who fell into crime he's he's ripping off convenience or what is it, supermarkets and shit you know right yeah no he, he looks like a real guy and he's trying to hold on to his hair even though it's not working you know <laughs> he looks like he looks like the other guy in a dirty dirty mary crazy larry or crazy larry right. mary, you know he looks like that third lead in that film, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, all like this is just the guy. He's just the guy in the crime film to me at this point. Is like the kind of slightly older, you know, just kind of balding, you know, kind of yep. a fuck up, but but he'll still kill your ass if if uh, he has to. That's just that's just that guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, final thoughts on this? I I think it still holds up from when I put it on my best of list. Uh, it's even better. 
I, I enjoy watching it. It's it's something I do rewatch. I mean, what what more can you say about yeah. it? Even even for its sort of flaws, it it still works. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of uh, laughing at it, you know, here, and I'm kind of enjoying yeah. like kind of like puncturing it slightly. But it is a really good film, and it's definitely um, I, I'm not sorry I put it on my on my best of list last year. Um, it's it's still a really great uh, watch, and I will I will rewatch it again. This is not the last time I've, I will watch this film. Yeah. So yeah, if you if you haven't seen it, uh, it's I mean again really worth a really worth a look see. Yeah, I'll just go over a little bit of trivia here for that. Um, apparently, the studio wanted Charles Bronson as the lead. <laughs> uh, sure. And he and and Bronson had worked with Walter Hill in Hard Times previous to this, but Bronson mm-hmm. apparently got a hate on for uh, Walter Hill. He basically edited his wife Jill Ireland out of a lot of stuff in that movie, and he didn't like it. So he's like, "Fuck you." <laughs> Fuck yeah, I'm going to go make Violent City now. Done. Yeah, exactly. Fuck up. Uh, Walter Hill discussed the Bruce Dern part with Rob- Robert Mitchum, apparently, before this. Imagine if Robert Mitchum had been in that part, how, how fucking really slow and deadpan this whole film would have been. Imagine him as the foil to the driver. Yeah, no. I, I, don't, I... I don't know if that would have worked. <laughs> I mean, then it just becomes like... I, I mean, especially if it's McQueen and Mitchum, it just becomes yeah. like big tough guys i mean it's almost like these two guys have egos and personalities too big to fit behind the wheel of a car so you know you they they'd have to drive around like they're in clown cars like that's how like big their kind of personalities are oh i like i I like this casting because they're slightly smaller right if they don't feel like you know big badass like they're not like swinging their balls around all the time you know if if it was mitchum and mcqueen is as amazing as that might have been in a certain way, you, you know they would have to have a scene where they had a fist fight or something. At some right, point. right. I mean, you know, it, it would have been it would have been the fist fight from They Live, you know, seven years. <laughs> so put the um, glasses on. Yeah, <laughs> put them on. Uh, so apparently, there's a 131 minute version of this out there somewhere. Although Walter Hill denies it, <laughs> that had basically just had more action scenes in it. The UK, one of the UK v- video versions actually cut out 18 seconds where Ronnie Blakely has a gun forced into her mouth, oh, although that yeah. was waived in 2004. I can see the obvious reason why their uh, little uh, fidgety uh, video nasty board would probably go after that that scene. Ryan O'Neill says only 350 words in the entire film. I believe that. That that yeah. actually seems like a more than I expect, honestly. <laughs> yeah, really. It seems it seems a little high, actually. <laughs> And and uh, as I mentioned, there are there are a lot of cut stuff out of this. Apparently, if you get the Blu-ray version of this, there's opening scenes where uh, Ronnie Blakely hires I- Isabella Johnny, and Bruce Dern meets his detective partner Matt Clark for the first time, and sort of sets up the story. Although, w- when you watch it in the version that I think we both watch, where it just starts with the heist and the car chase, you don't need those scenes because the film pretty much gives you the plot as it goes along anyway so that's fine that always feels like like a studio thing to me you know where the studio is like oh we gotta we gotta set it up we gotta make sure people know what's going on right <laughs> it's like yeah let's let's have, let's always every film needs 15 minutes of complete nothing happening at the beginning before we yeah. get the actual story <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. we've got to establish the existence of these characters because when we bring them back and have something to do with them you're not gonna know who they are it's exactly. explain it then, you know, it's like, come on. 
It was a thing. I watching uh, Eyewitness. You know, I, I growing up as a kid, I always. Sorry, I'm just gonna completely run over you here, but um, I always used to watch films and just think you can just skip the first thirty minutes of any movie. You know, when I was like nine, because the first thirty minutes are just like setting things up, and then like the good stuff doesn't start until. And then I started timing it like almost every movie. It was like thirty minutes in. You know, you just cut the yeah. first thirty minutes. Like you don't have to care. And uh, this film doesn't do that, but I mean, you know, kind of rewatch it, like watching Eyewitnesses, it was a little bit like, yeah, the real movie doesn't start until 30 minutes into this thing. Um, you know, there is there is that kind of, it seems like there was that era of filmmaking where, you know, the studios were just like demanding, we have to like set everything up ahead of time. We have to make sure every character gets introduced in a very stereotypical way, and then uh, then we can actually start our plot. You know. Well, I mean, with, with the direction movies go these days where everyone wants to do a trilogy, the first movie does that. It's not yeah. 30 minutes anymore. It's two fucking hours. Well, I mean, you know, that's the whole thing with, like, every superhero movie. Let's talk mm. superhero movies some more. Yeah. <laughs> Mike Murphy will love us again. Um, <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah, but it, you're right. I mean, it really is, like, everything has to be a, a multi-part series. So, you know, the, the last three minutes of every superhero movie of the, the first of a series is like, and now the whole gang's together and now wait for the real adventure in the next movie. Yeah. You know? So, so yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it's, it's gotten even worse. Although I think, um, there's a little bit less of like the, like moving the chess pieces around and stuff mm-hmm. in, in modern cinema. Like we don't seem to need, Oh, we have to introduce the person who's going to show up halfway through the film. and is the, you know, connection person, you know, sort of right. Thing. Right. Um, certainly in like art films and sort of like indie films or, or, you know, kind of prestige pictures. We don't, we don't really do that anymore. Yeah, not in the same way. Uh, budget for this was four million. It was a financial uh, failure in the box office. It only incurred about four point nine million in the USA, and rentals later on got it about two point two five million. It did a lot better in Europe, but uh, Walter Hill is on record saying he didn't see a fucking dime of this. So, so it did do very good. And I mean, even Isabella Johnny says this kind of hurt her career in the U.S., this being her first movie, even though she really wanted to work with Walter Hill. Apparently, this kind of gave her bad options for roles afterwards. And I'm honestly not surprised because she's not given a lot in this film. So it's like, oh, you look really hot in a suit. So let's give you movies where you look really hot in a suit. <laughs> well, that's really that's really all you need. For, for, yeah, she looks good. That's that's it, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a shame because she's amazing, and um, I, I've got a couple. I, I know the uh, I've got a couple of other films with her mm-hmm. that I have uh, kind of acquired, and I'm going to be watching at some point, um, and just haven't had a chance to watch for this week. So um, I don't know. I think I think she was amazing in Osferatu, and I think she's good here, but she's just not given anything to do. Right. Uh, the music for this was done by Michael Small, who uh, we know from Night Moves. He did the nice little jazzy score there, and he does a nice little jazzy score here. And he, and really, Michael Small's kind of like an unsung hero of 1970s crime film and thriller film kind of scores. He did stuff like the Parallax View and Marathon Man as well. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. DVD info, finally. 2005 DVD from Fox Home Video. It's a flipper disc, so you can get the widescreen or the full screen for some reason if you want that shit. And there's a 2013 Blu-ray from Twilight Time, which is apparently the one to look for, but it was a limited release at 3,000 copies, which is, of course, sold out. 
But I'm sure you can buy it for like eight thousand dollars on eBay if you look. So there you go. <laughs> and yeah, that's a great. I, I love that idea. Like, let's take this uh, kind of obscure classic and. Let's release a Blu-ray with only three thousand copies. That's a great idea, guys. Yeah. And then there was it. a there was a twenty fourteen Blu-ray release as well from Studio Canal, and I don't know what the size of that release was. It doesn't say it was limited, so I'm assuming maybe it's a little bit easier to find, but uh, who knows? But but honestly, the the DVD is widely available, and it looks pretty decent. So. If you want to grab it there, I don't know if it's on any streaming services anywhere. Probably is. I think it was maybe on Amazon. No, no, it wasn't on Amazon streaming because I was gonna watch it that way, and then um, was I would have I would have had to buy the disc, so it isn't streaming on Amazon, and it's not on um, Netflix. I know. Oh. I, so okay. um, fuck you, internet. Yeah, I mean it's findable. If yeah. You're, if you're hunt for it a bit, there are ways. And I'm I mean, not, certainly you... not gonna encourage people to, you know. Well, find, find these films, you know, without paying for them through yeah. legal channels, but it's findable. Yeah, you, it definitely is. And, uh, you know, if you're one of these antiquated uh, nerds like myself, uh, just go buy a copy because that's what I did. When I was getting ready to prepare for this, I was like, I swore I'd actually actually owned a copy of this. And I was like looking through my collection. I was like, wait, I don't own a copy of this. So this week I actually ordered a copy, but luckily enough I got it from here in Canada, so it shipped within like a day, and then I had it for me ready and waiting, so it was pretty good. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I, I totally would have bought a copy. I just uh, I thought of it too late, and then, you know, what we're going to record. So yeah, <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to have to put it off again. So Yeah.
So now we can move on to our next film, which is going to be Drive from 2011. 
If I drive for you, you give me a time and a place. I give you a five-minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes, and I'm yours, no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. So you just moved to LA? No, I've been here for a while. What do you do? I drive for movies. Is that dangerous? It's only part time. You put this kid behind the wheel. There's nothing he can't do. Kid, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. My hands are a little dirty. So am I. My husband is coming home. Where is he? He's in prison. There's some guys that want me to do a job for him, and I'm not going to do it. What is that you got there? One of those men gave you that? What's the job? When you get your money, his debt's paid. You never go near his family again. <gasps> Did you have any idea there'd be a second car? He said there'd be another car to hold us up. Whose money do I have? I'm gonna tell you something. Anybody finds out we're both dead. That's why this driver's gotta go, Bernie. He's gotta go. Any dreams you have or plans for your future, I think you're going to have to put that on hold. For the rest of your life, you're going to be looking over your shoulder. Directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, written by Hossein Amani. He did the screenplay based on a book by James Salas and is starring Ryan Gosling as a driver. Carrie Mulligan as Irene, Brian Cranston as Shannon, Albert Brooks as Bernie Rose, Oscar Isaac as Standard, Christina Hendricks as Blanche, Ron Perlman as Nino, Caden Leos as Benicio, Jeff Wolf as Tan Suit, James Bybury as Cook, and Russ Tamblin as Doc. And I'll let you get into the synopsis, Daniel. Sure. I, again, did not write a synopsis for this, but I am going to uh, read just a little bit from Wikipedia and then just kind of summarize it. Uh, impromptu after that. So, The unnamed driver works as a mechanic, a movie double, and a stunt driver, as well as a criminal-for-hire getaway driver. He is managed in all jobs by auto shop owner Shannon, who persuades the Jewish mobsters Bernie Rose and Nino to purchase a car for the driver to race. The driver meets his new neighbor, Irene, and becomes close to her and her young son, Benicio. Irene's husband, Standard Gabriel, is in prison. After Standard is released, Irene still asks the driver to visit them. That's about the first hour of the film, by the way, mm-hmm. or at least like 40 minutes. Right. And uh, that was said. So, and then um, the Wikipedia plot goes like way in depth from here forward. 
because basically what happens is Standard gets beat up by some guys because he owes protection money, and so because the driver feels guilty for falling in love with Irene, he agrees to sort of drive for Standard to go steal some money and do this job for these guys, and then the shit hits the fan, and Christina Hendricks is involved, and she's great. Lots of bloody, violent action, and uh, only one scene in a strip club, so there's that. Yeah. Um, And yeah, that that's kind of the plot. <laughs> I mean, it, it it gets really convoluted, and like nothing that I've said actually tells you what the actual pleasures of this film are. So, I don't know. Like, read the Wikipedia plot. Just there's no need for me to read it. You read it. Yeah. When was the first time you saw this, Daniel? In preparation for this episode. Um, okay. So uh, I, I watched this twice again. I watched it. I thought we were going to record um, like a week and a half ago, and then. Uh, we didn't, so and then I rewatched it. I knew for something like this, I knew I was going to want to watch it twice, but um, just a couple weeks ago for the uh, for the podcast. Okay, cool. So uh, I'll immediately get into your sort of initial thoughts on this one. Then I mean, it's funny, like I have kind of similar issues with this that I have with the driver. I mean, it's similar, mm-hmm. similar positives and similar negatives, even though they're they're very different films in a lot of ways um, in terms of kind of what they're about and sort of the tone because driver the driver is very bare and kind of sparse and very you know kind of a no nonsense nuts and bolts in a way mm-hmm. whereas this is much more stylized um in terms of its music in terms of its performances in terms of structurally i mean you know in terms just cinematography it's just it's a much kind of richer film um in terms of its visuals mm-hmm. at the same time i think it does kind of suffer a little bit from the same kind of problem in that it it's so spare in terms of its main characters it's I mean, again, you've got an, a nameless driver. Right. Um, the other characters in the film actually have names, but they are. I mean, it does kind of become the girlfriend and the son and the the husband mm-hmm. and the the mob guy. You know, it's sort of uh, we sort of get that same level of uh, abstraction to them, even though they are much richer characters or sort of more well-defined characters than you have in the driver. I think that the issue then becomes that our driver, the driver himself, Ryan Gosling, is again, kind of very much defined by his actions more so than his words. He's a man with even fewer words than the driver in the first film. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first time through it, I didn't quite know what the film was going for. On a second watch through again, kind of know it actually rose in my estimation on a second watch through. Um, Because I rewatched it today and went, okay, now I I sort of get what this film is really doing and who this guy is supposed to be a lot more. I really wish I'd seen it theatrically because I think this is a film that really demands kind of getting full attention mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of like watching it on a laptop or watching it on a TV where I'm kind of, you're, you're just kind of continually distracted by, you know, just things in your life. Right. Whereas I think the theatrical experience, it's, it's, this is a film that's very obviously designed to be seen with, you know, kind of on a big screen, you know, projected yeah. 30 feet in front of you and kind of be immersive in a way. And it is a really great immersive experience. I'm not sure it's a great narrative experience or if there are interesting narrative things, I don't think that they have much to do with, what's going on on screen but i'll get into that a little bit later i think um what do you think of this film i like it a lot i don't know if i like it more than the driver i think it's almost on equal footing for me with the driver but i think where the driver fails at being more of a existentialist art film i think this one succeeds a lot more yep. in that regard and uh i think of course that's what winding riffin was going for with, with this because right. he he's 
also he's known as an art house director anyway. Yeah, I really, as you mentioned, I really like that all the supporting characters are actually a bit more fleshed out in this. They're not just symbols so much. They're they're, they're actual. They feel like actual characters to me. And they're using they're used as a as a sort of a counter to the driver who initially seems like he's just like Ryan O'Neill in the driver, you know, or Alan Delon as is the samurai in the samurai. But I feel like uh, Ryan Gosling's character sort of emerges slowly throughout the film where you get more of a sense of what he's actually about. He's just this guy who pushes his emotions down although when he does connect with someone he becomes totally loyal and protective to them to the point where his other side of his character comes out where he's a guy who has really massive rage issues like to the point where he's basically a psychopath and yeah he <laughs> the, the sort of moments of extreme violence that come out in this film where he becomes super protective of people is pretty shocking, honestly. The first time I watched this, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I do have some thoughts on the violence and the way it's used because you really don't get... I mean, the first... Again, the first 45 minutes or so are really just setting up these characters and right. sort of setting up the situation. It's it's almost a definition of slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, you spend a lot of time just kind of watching ryan gosling stare at things you know and drive you know that's that's a little bit that's a little bit it's an oversimplification but there is there is a real sense of that once you kind of get into the story um the violence starts happening pretty quickly and when it happens i mean pretty much every violent act in the film i know you're referring to one particular moment in an elevator which is just like horrifically violent I think that that's Winding Refn trying to. I don't want to say shock the audience, because I don't. I, that makes it sound simplistic. I think that if you were looking at this, you know, we're so desensitized to violence in films now, you mm-hmm. know, to where if you did just see, oh, he he beat the guy's face in and um, ran away, you know, it could still be shocking to um, Irene to Carrie Mulligan's character, right? In, in sort of a real life thing, and like if you saw just somebody like you know, if I beat some guy's face in and like broke his nose and he was just bleeding on the floor, that would be shocking in real life. You know, mm. but that's nothing for a movie like this. You you like you literally have to go to, and then he breaks the guy, he beats the guy's face in with his boot in order yeah. to like really sell how horrific this violence is. And so I think that might be some of what Winning Reference trying to do because all the violence in the film is sort of played to that same kind of height you know mm-hmm. um or at least most of it i mean all but like the the initial shooting um where um standard gets shot yeah is is fairly subdued but you know um <laughs> we're just gonna ruin all the like big surprises <laughs> in this film but you know somebody's like somebody's uh head gets literally blown open yeah um and uh you get you know later on you get somebody who's like stabbed in the neck with a knife and i mean you know so a lot of the violence is treated in that very big extra gory kind of way and i think that that is just meant to be shocking i I think that it's it's winning reference trying to push it in that direction so i kind of see that moment in the elevator i mean i see that whole elevator sequence is really metaphorical more so than i see it as sort of a a literal representation yeah you know i think that's uh, yeah that's where the art house thing sort of comes in i think where i think i think a lot of this movie is i mean it's obviously not meant to be treated literally um we're supposed to be seeing this through you know somebody's eyes or through a certain filter of perception in a way and so i don't know for me that's kind of where i land on the violence i think that what i see in terms of um gosling's character 
is a guy who doesn't quite know what he is. He's just kind of a guy going through the motions at first, you know? Mm. He's really good at driving, and he wants to drive, and so that's what he does. I think that his kind of almost chance friendship with Irene, which and then kind of becoming a sort of father figure and a sort of family man, you know, in this sort of very limited way, does kind of lead to him kind of finally having something that he needs to protect and something that he he wants to kind of have in his life. Right. You start to see him be softer and more human when, you know, like the moment when uh, <laughs> Brian Cranston is like, hey, you're you're going to drive them home, right? Mm. And he's like sheepish about it. Like, yeah. He's, he's kind of uh, he's kind of looking at his feet and he's kind of shuffling his feet. I mean, you know, and you don't see this. I mean, um, you kind of talk about Ryan O'Neill in, in The Driver, you know, and, and sort of this, he's a little bit more like a hangdog expression. This is, this is like this kind of like, almost soft baby-faced kind of guy. I mean, he's just yeah. like, oh, okay, well, i got to put tires on the car first before I can drive home. Can you wait five minutes, sort of? I mean, yeah, there is there is that kind of quality to him. He's got this... There's more fragility to his character, like, deep down. and mm-hmm. But I think the reading I got from his character is that he knows what he's capable of, and that's one of the biggest reasons why he is so quiet and reserved and pushed back. And when he runs into someone he actually falls in love with that brings out the better side of him and he becomes incredibly protective but you're right like i really do like how he is so kind of like a wounded puppy dog you know and when when he opens himself up and emotes to irene like where he has to talk to her outside of the elevator and and basically tell her well standard got mixed up with these guys in prison and this is the reason he's dead i still have the money and I was kind of hoping that maybe you would bring the kid and we just get the fuck out of here with the money. And <laughs> right. And I mean, you can see how he's, he's looking down. He can't even look her in the eyes to say it. Like he's so right. He's so broken down and beaten down by it. But, and I, and I think it's a great performance. Like he does have that steely eyed kind of thing that like a Steve McQueen would have like he, here he's very much more doing the kind of Steve McQueen thing that Ryan O'Neill wasn't doing in the driver. Like he he's, he's very much of that here. Ryan Gosling. I feel like he's very much more of that kind of old school tough guy kind of mentality to a certain degree, but he does bring out like that inner kind of softness as well. Because there's this eighties theme that's going all the way through, like all the, all the music is sort of eighties. It's a, it's it's all synth music. It's all yeah. Um, it, it, some of it is actually from the eighties, and some of it is new music. That yeah, it's all of, the retro uh, retro electronic right. stuff. Yeah, right. And then the uh, like the the titles and the you know so some of the way like the opening credits are shot and that sort of thing. It's, it, it's yeah, risky it's business, very... risky business, <laughs> risky business. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the first time through this, I'm like, why why are we? This isn't set in the eighties. There's no. This isn't the eighties. Why are we? Why are you pretending this is the 80s? It kind of clashed for me. And I think the way I'm choosing to interpret it right now is that Gosling's character sort of sees himself as this sort of 80s action movie hero. Mm-hmm. Like he's wearing the jacket, you know, like Cobra. Yeah. You know, he, he he puts on the gloves. I mean, he's got this kind of like in his mind, that's who he is, is when he's on a job, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of got the uh, the tough guy thing, you know. Anything within that five minutes, I'm yours. Yeah, and you can almost see him like say it in like Stallone. Anything in that five minutes, I'm yours. Even though he doesn't, <laughs> you know, you can sort of see like that could be like a Stallone line, you know, in that in that sort of sort of way. And so I think that's that's sort of his mentality. Uh, but then at the same time, 
he's not really i mean he he has this sort of violence in him he has this ability to do these things in him but i think he's in, in reality i think that that's not who he is at all i think he's a much softer heart i think he's got a, a much more um kind of tearjerker kind of attitude and so when he does i mean the tenderness with which he i mean he courts i'm putting in quotes and in air quotes here i mean you know like the biggest like emotional beat that he has with irene up to the very end of the film is he he reaches out and touches her hand mm-hmm. on like a, on, a, on a gear stick you know and uh well no they, she touches him Oh, she touches him. Yeah. She she has to reach out to him. But I mean, it's definitely you know, it's it's he responds in that right. very positive way. You know, it's not. Um, but like this, this there's not like a sense of like this is a passionate love affair in a in a um, physical sense. You don't get the sense that these characters ever like had sex or even even really talked about this stuff. He just he has this romantic side, and that that's kind of who he is. Yeah. And um, I love that aspect to him. I love the idea that he he isn't really this tough guy that he's pretending to be. He's really this uh big softy you yeah. know well, who just I mean, just will do these things when he has to do them you know I, I mean i think the bottom line is that he's fucking crazy like <laughs> he's, he's he's not normal he's he is crazy mm-hmm. so there's all kind of contrasting kind of uh things going on in his character that i think are just part of the point of his character i mean i think that describing him as crazy while i'm not i mean i'm not like um gainsaying that but i think that the fact that it's not that the character is ambiguous necessarily. It's that the character is difficult to interpret. Yeah. It's unclear why he does some of the things he does. Right. And I think that that is sort of like, especially if you're going to do this kind of very in-depth character piece that is about this person and about the kind of the world in which that he inhabits, having this guy where, you know, just we fundamentally don't know why he makes some of the decisions he makes. Mm-hmm. Is kind of is is a problem with the film and affects the narrative through line. For me, the most interesting things about the film are not even the driver; it's all the people around the driver and yeah, the way they how I mean, react to him. Yeah. If uh, the 1978 film, if the Ryan O'Neill film is sort of about Ryan O'Neill and how he responds to the people around him, yeah. 2011 film is about the way that all the other people around the driver react to this sort of this this crazy guy who's gonna just do stuff you know right and i'm pretty Um, i'm pretty sure uh uh, refn was consciously doing that because i mean the opening scene is a direct rip from the driver although it it takes you inside the driver's car which is amazing by the way because that entire shot is done from inside the car and then afterwards the the other car chases in the film are outside but um but yeah, I mean, obviously, initially marks that as like the one of the primary influences of the film. So you can see where he's kind of. I want to take that story and I want to actually turn it into an art film and maybe subvert right. the ideas a little bit and and switch them around on their head. Watching this, I was also thinking of like this is the film that Killing Them Softly was trying so hard to mm-hmm. do. <laughs> it was trying oh, so fucking hard. <laughs> God damn that fucking film. We need to cover that at some point just to. Just yeah. talk about how shitty it oh, is. I hate that. Jesus Christ. I fucking hate that film. Oh, it's so terrible. Um, <laughs> but no, it's you can tell like it's trying to do this sort of art film like crime movie thing. Yep. And Drive is a Drive is a much better version of that. I mean, it, it, even though I don't think it's perfect, I think it's a, it's a very um, it's very well executed. It looks gorgeous. And let's talk about some of the other characters if you don't mind. Okay. 
I mean, first of all, I mean, you can't, you gotta talk about Irene. Um, yeah. Carrie Mulligan, she is like, I mean, you could definitely kind of say it's like a Johnny who she doesn't quite have enough to do, but she has a lot more to do than a Johnny did in the first film. Right. And uh, you totally buy her in this role as this person who married this guy or, you know, kind of got with this guy when she was super young. She has a son, you know, she's kind of going with her day-to-day life. And uh, I really buy the romance between these two characters. I mean, right. and for as little as they spend talking about it, I mean, that's kind of remarkable. And you also kind of get how torn she is between, because she's married to um, Oscar Isaac, yep. uh, to Standard. And uh, Standard's in prison, uh, you know, at this kind of beginning of the film. And um, so she feels torn about kind of like, what am I doing with this guy who drives to the movies? You know, who, what is this stunt driver guy really going to... What is, what is this? What are we doing? Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, she never had... There's never... You never get like a bit of dialogue about it. But um, you really get it in the performance that she's she feels kind of ambiguous about what she's doing. And even when she finds out that he's going to be let out of prison, it's kind of like, um, yeah, so that's happening now. I guess we got to deal with that. The cool thing is that she's at least honest about it in the little dialogue that they actually do share. She, she just flats out tell him he's coming back and... And uh, you get the sense between the two of them that they're both not okay with that to a certain degree. They're kind of like, right. God damn, I wish this wasn't happening. Um, It'd be a lot more convenient if he'd just stay in prison. I mean, ultimately, wouldn't it have been much better for everybody involved? It would have been because standard is standard means well, but he's a fuck-up. He's just a total fuck-up. Right. And his decisions fuck up other people's lives, not just his own. Um, yeah, the thing about she should have gone for the deluxe version. That's that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the the thing about the driver and Irene, they decided Gosling and Mulligan decided that they were going to strip a lot of the dialogue out of this between the two characters. It was like a conscious decision between the two actors and Riffin just mm-hmm. apparently. So you get a lot more just shots between the two of them looking at each other and smiling at each other. And this is where I think not only the performances come in and speak volumes, I think this is where the soundtrack and the score really connects with the characters and really sort of elevates a lot of the plot, fills in a lot of the gaps, because I I, I really love the music in this. I really love how it kind of informs the viewer of what they're thinking and what they're saying without saying it verbally. I feel like it, it really kind of lifts up a lot of the sort of emotional resonance, you know, not to sound too douchebaggy, and a film critic about it, but this is one of those films like a Once Upon a Time in the West, where I feel like the music really helps elevate the entire film, where it's like an integral part of it, and absolutely, and it really brings this perform these two performances together. Like these two leads are really, really good, and I think it was a really smart decision that they didn't say a lot between each other. It's hard to know without knowing what the dialogue was. But, you know, we've seen these kind of romances before about, like, the guy and the girl who's the next-door neighbor, and they meet in the laundry room, and then so they have, like, oh, I'm using fabric softener. Oh, well, you know, (laughs) let me, you know. And, like, that's all this fucking shitty dialogue always is, right? And so there is this sort of temptation to go, like, look, we don't, like, if you've got good actors and you've got this, like, connection between them, you don't need that. You know, you can just kind of play some music and let let them inhabit a space together. And... And that's sort of why I'm kind of saying like this is this is the sort of film that it would be really interesting to see on a big screen. Right. 
on the uh, because experiencing it in that like kind of in the moment where you know it's a lot harder to like oh check my phone or whatever kind of have it overwhelm me would definitely be the better way to absorb that. Um, I think that it's it's uh, you know watching it on kind of a, a screen at home it's a little bit more having to uh, really watch the performances and really kind of feel like I'm I'm looking for the nuance whereas I think on a you know on a on a bigger screen it would kind of uh make itself a little bit more apparent. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I mean I still I still think it works. I think that it, I mean that's this is clearly a film that was designed for a big screen experience, which most films are, but I mean I think um I think it actually does lose something for not having been seen um theatrically. But I do love Carrie Mulligan in this yep. and uh, I think if she was not I mean A she's she's fucking adorable. Yeah, right? very cute. I mean, very you know, very cute. And and very much like a a human being, you know, doesn't doesn't kind of seem like oh the impossible girl, you know, like No, she's you know, it's not... she's a very uh very realistic mom who's you know staying home she's she's working some shitty 9 to 5 job. And she's yep. trying her hardest to be there for a kid. She's got a husband who's a fuck up in prison. Mm-hmm. And she's trying her best to make that work. And at the same time, there's this really interesting guy who is warm and she connects with. And it's very real human emotion. So, <coughs> like, it, it, it very much connects on that sort of level of very realistic. Like, yeah, she probably would fall for this guy, even though he's... You know he's kind of mysterious and stuff, but it's it's not the it's not the uh, sort of stereotypical. Oh, he's so he's so hot and mysterious. I'm just I'm just gonna fall for him. I'm a you know I'm this typical noir character that likes the bad boy or whatever. It, it, it's a very nice, sweet kind of little romance that kindles within like the period of a week. Like standard comes back by basically by surprise. I think almost uh, gets released from prison in a week and. Just... Yeah, I don't think we get a a clear sense of like how much time this sort of romance takes. Right. Um, I mean, it, it it could be. I mean, it could easily be like a couple of months. You know, could like, be. because we yeah. we know that we know that they had time to like buy the race car. I guess we have to get into the the actual crime story side of this here. Um, yeah, in a little bit to, to kind of get into this, but um, you know, we know that they bought the car and they know that they've been working on it and all that sort of thing. So I mean, you know, you could say. Maybe six months, like on the outside, oh, sort of sort of time frame. I, I don't, you know? I don't know if I'd go that far. We'll get more into the crime aspect, but I, I think uh, Albert Brooks' uh, character likes to move fast. So, sure, uh, sure. so I think that I think this is within a week or two, honestly. Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is it's sort of left to interpretation. I, I don't think I don't think the driver is that emotionally distant from Irene that they would take six months to fuck. Let's just put it that way, <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, that, that's that's a. I mean, if if I had Carrie Mulligan looking at me like that, um, it would take uh, about four minutes, exactly. You know, yes, to 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 make the move on my on my end. So yeah. You know. So I mean, if you were a pent up, uh, repressed, uh, emotionally psychopath who drives getaway cars, maybe it'd take you a couple more days. You know, whatever. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am that anyway. Oh. I mean, I don't drive getaway cars, but other than that, you know. Look out, Michigan. Emotionally pent up so, so, sociopath. I mean, that does describe Yeah, me. well, it describes most of us, honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's why we podcast, because we can't interact with human beings exactly. in our life, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, I, do, I do have a question, though, uh, regarding sure. Standard. Now, do you feel like he is threatened by the driver moving in on Irene? Or is it because he picks up 
on the i on the sort of like he's sort of being in prison he picks up that the driver is a professional criminal to some extent or is it both i mean i i definitely interpret that as like you're moving in on my girl mm-hmm. uh, much more so uh because even when uh the driver kind of comes up to him and it's uh, like after he gets beat up mm-hmm. um, and uh, he's like, kind of what's going on, what, you know, and it, there is this kind of sense of where I don't know that standard is thinking like, well, this is some like badass is going to be able to help me out. I, I think that he still kind of sees him as like, oh, he's the pretty boy who's coming by to help out. Right. I don't read it as like, oh, he immediately sees like there's this threat of this guy who's like this, you know, badass criminal. I think he just sees it as like, oh, it's a pretty blonde boy who's coming over and like helping out with okay. the chores and my yeah. pretty blonde wife, you know, and he's like got and he's and I mean also like this is his kid, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean I mean I'm not I'm not in any sense trying to, you know, kind of but I think that's who the character is, is like, you know, who are you who is this guy who's coming over and helping out with my kid, you know, sort of thing when I was in prison when I couldn't be home. Right. And I think that he's like exerting himself. But he's also um a big enough man to be like, Hey, let mommy talk to her friend. Yeah. You know? Like he does kinda walk away. I mean he kind of exerts his space and kinda says, Hey, this is mine, leave it alone but then also kind of has enough trust in his in his wife to kind of you know, he's not portrayed as this, like, you know, Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, not quite that, yeah. He's not sitting there going, you fucking whore! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is one of the things I like about him, honestly. I mean, he, he's a, he's a, he, he's a fuck-up, but he's a likable fuck-up. Well, he's trying. Yeah. He's trying to make things work, but he's just right. he's just got this fucking monkey on his back from prison that won't leave yeah. him alone. What do you think of Brian Cranston's? It's a small part, but it's a pretty integral part of this film. I love Brian Cranston in this, yep. and um, so I haven't read the novel. Um, mm-hmm. This was based on a novel by James Salas, and the Wikipedia page for the film kind of talks about like how the the novel is apparently much more like it's got a bunch of flashbacks and it's sort of like you know yeah. not structured in the way. Um, it sounds like there's a lot more going on in the novel. And if I had to guess, I'd guess that the sort of the backstories of all of these uh, gangsters is much more um, part of the novel than is in the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why they kind of seem more interesting, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you've got these guys who sort of very clearly have, you know, and, and here we're talking about basically three kind of low rank criminals. You've got Albert Brooks and Brian Cranston and Ron Perlman, the great Ron Perlman, yep. who's amazing at this, who kind of have these like scams and these sort of businesses that have been going back, you know, like 20 and 30 years maybe. Brian Cranston is this kind of low rent. He runs a auto, auto shop and he has a, he's selling old cars and he's kind of fixing up old cars and selling them for, you know. And uh he kind of openly admits I'm exploiting this guy. Oh yeah, he's <laughs> taking he hired him on for less than he pays his regular employees. When he's doing the stunt drive stuff with him, he takes like half his cut when he can wheel and deal an extra <laughs> right. 500 bucks. You got an extra 500 bucks. Yeah, we're going to split that. And I mean, the driver's just like, all right, whatever. whatever. I mean, he's just, uh, he's such a sleazeball, but he's such a fun little sleazeball. Yeah. Um, I love Brian Cranston. I mean, um, you know, we've talked about Breaking Bad a bit here and there, mm-hmm. but um, I love Brian Cranston. He's great. I've loved him since Malcolm in the Middle. He's so funny. And he's so, like, he, he just, uh, you know, it's it's these three gangster characters who kind of keep the film from being a too austere mm-hmm. and to kind of one note because 
they really just inject life into this. Right. And, and Brian Cranston is just, I just love how sleazy he is. He's a shithead little <laughs> love, schemer, man. He's just, he, he's just, he's like, how much did I make on this business last year? $30,000. Yeah. That's <laughs> chump change. And he's like, I want $400,000. We're going to, we're going to uh, race cars and I'm uh, going to have this new business. And, um, oh yeah, but I got the best driver in the world. So we're definitely going to make our money. Yeah. It's going to be fine. And the, um, the thing about him, though, is he's not a bad person either. He's just, he's just, he's he's his own. He's just, a, he's just sleazy. He's his own you know? worst enemy. He's, yeah, yeah, and he gets it over his head. That's the other thing. Like it's he, he's literally just like he's just this small time guy. He's very happy to be the small time guy. I mean, he's got dreams for more, but like he's perfectly fine doing what he's doing. And he just ends up in this situation where it's not even really his fault. No, he just he just fucks up. He he lets out the wrong piece of information, and then like boom, he's dead. Yeah, and that's you know. And you get that history of the character where with his with his uh, knee brace where. Mm-hmm. He fucked up before in the past, and that was the that was the cost. He's like, I paid my debt. It's like, yeah, he he fucked up in the past with some criminals. He with uh, Nino, and got a yep. broken leg out of a broken busted up knee out of it. So yeah, yep, yep. No, um, Albert Brooks shaved his fucking eyebrows for this picture, made him look more menacing. Like I mean, some of us uh, males when we get older, we do. Some of us grow wild fucking uh, eyebrow hair, and some of us lose our eyebrows almost completely. So. It's kind of a kind of a crazy look for Albert Brooks, but not funny at all. He's not funny at all in this film. <laughs> he's he is fucking scary. He's fucking scary. He's got that he's got that charm underneath though. I mean, he's, like, and this is this is the thing that when um, comic actors do uh, these kinds of parts, because because you know that he does have that ability. Mm-hmm inside of him and i I love how uh he's perfectly willing to be cruel but he's trying to do it in the nicest possible way you know like when he kills um sorry spoiler alert here (laughs) um you know he kills brian Cranston, and i mean he just slices his arm open and then just holds it and just like that's it it's over we're done no pain it's done now there's no more pain it's you know that's you know he even he's even he's like apologizing while he's like yeah i'm gonna have to kill you oh well he's to the driver at the end yeah like, he feels I'm, bad about like, all of it because he has to clean up fucking nino's mess and he's just very right. pissed off but it's not even, it's not even like this like frustrated sort of thing i mean there is that but it's like he doesn't he doesn't really want to have to do it he yeah. just kind of gets himself in that situation where he and um brooks plays it perfectly i mean i mean it's a i mean for my money brooks is uh the best performance in the agreed film. Agreed. Quite honestly. Um, as much as I love the other performances in the film, Brooks is just brilliant in it. I want to see, I really want to see a film that's like a prequel that's just about like Nino and um, and Brooks and, uh, and Brian. Yeah, you, you've seen True Romance, right? I have. So he's essentially the tough guy version of Sal Rubinick's character, and that is the sleazy movie producer um, who's into I, criminal yeah. stuff as well for a little bit. Because he hints, you know, it's like, I used to make, I used to produce movies in the 80s, you know, action, sexy stuff. They, they, the critics said it was European. I thought it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> there was one critic who said it was European. I can just imagine. I mean, I, I just kind of think of like he was making like canon films. Exactly. You know? <laughs> canon. It's exactly what he was doing. He, he was like this like director for hire, producer for hire sort of like <laughs> guy, you know, like, and I love that. That's such a, that's such a like real little thing. Like. Yeah, we we made some films with that had some tits in them. You know, there was this one film I made called Perfect Timing. Um, <laughs> you should check it out. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Shannon was the stunt driver on that. We didn't use him much for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and then of course, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I th- 
think we're going the same direction. Ron Perlman is Nino. Um, yeah. Not his real name, by the way. I mean, you can tell his real name is actually <clears throat> Isaac because he's called Izzy at one point, which is the Jewish short for Isaac. Yeah. And he's this Jewish gangster who wants to be an Italian mobster. And, <laughs> right. I mean, he's he's wearing the fucking track suits and he's he's yeah. got this angst that, you know, the, these guys call me a fucking kike to my face even now, you yeah. know. He's like, I'm 59 years old. They pinch my cheek and they, and they, you know, they call me a kike. And he's a guy who's not. To, I mean, he's this fucking terrifying yeah. guy, right? I mean, you just. I mean, that's a. He's the stone cold killer. Right. And um, you know, he's the guy. It's his money that's like at the center of all this, and he's the and he's the big badass guy. And then ultimately, you know, like he's just as much a fuck up as the rest of them. And he's the one who's. You know, he it's he's got this chip on his shoulder because he isn't taken seriously by the family, yeah. you know? And, I mean, again, it's that you get it in just a little bit of dialogue. I mean, there's more dialogue here in the kind of these sections than, like, the driver and Carrie Mulligan and that sort of yeah. thing. If the driver is almost, like, mute through the film, I mean, this could be... You could rewrite this as the great silence part, too. <laughs> you know, the amount of, like, you could really just have uh, the driver just be completely mute. Yeah. And uh, I think you could make a really interesting film out of that. You know, these guys, like, they make up for the lack of dialogue yeah. in the rest of the film. And it makes this really interesting dynamic where when the driver's on screen, when he's doing stuff, it's all very, very quiet. Mm-hmm. And it's very, you know, kind of almost monosyllabic. But then the gangsters come in and they're just talking constantly. So um, it's two very different kinds of energy I love how are constantly at war with each other, yeah. and it makes for a really interesting film experience. I love how Albert Brooks is the smart criminal, and I mean, by all rights, he should die an old man, uh, you yep. know, as a successful criminal who dies an old man because he's smart. But Nino is a meathead; he's just a fuck up, and that ang- that chip on his shoulder makes him fuck up. Like he's every much the fuck up that Shannon is. He's just oh, at yeah. a higher level in the crime empire. That's all, and he's got he's got more capital behind exactly. Him. I mean, you know, that's the whole thing. He's just got more money. He's got more institutional resources. Yeah, he 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 got lucky early on, and then was able to you know kind of build his way up in a way that Shannon never has, mm-hmm. and therefore you know Shannon's trying to, yeah. you know, and like everybody dies. That's the, <laughs> yeah, they all die because they all run into the driver, and he's like, "Fuck this shit, it's over." Yeah, I love that scene uh, in uh, in Nino. By the way, um, although he tries to pull, play off as being a big time gangster, his his front is a fucking pizza joint in a strip mall. Like yeah, exactly. And I love that scene where uh, afterwards, like the uh, secondary antagonist cook, who is basically just a pawn for Nino to uh, steal that mob money, and it's basically a double cross upon a double cross kind of idea. So they're in there, cooks eating pizza. He's got his broken hands thanks to the driver who just basically came into that strip club and that's an interesting scene by the way where all those incredibly busty strippers are just sort of silently coldly watching as this fucking scumbag gets his just desserts from the driver as you yeah i, I kind of get the uh, sense of uh, a they've seen this before yeah. and b uh, they don't have any particular connection no to this fuck guy. this guy like they're they're yeah you know, like he's probably stiffing them on their on their tips and you know on their uh on their cash outs and stuff. I mean, he's 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 like nickel and dime in these girls. Yeah. So it's fine. Like what? But uh, I, I do love that. I do I do love the moment when the driver walks in and there's the girl like texting on her phone yeah. 
is like, oh, where's the dress? Oh, it's over there. Yeah, it's just over He's there. Over, like, it's that way. Yeah. It's that get way. Get on my face. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I don't care. Just go. Like, get. I'm texting here. You know, I, I love that aspect. Yeah. I, I love that scene in the in the pizza place where they're having that conversation, and it's like Albert Brooks's characters. We got to clean up this fuck up, and Nino's like, "Yeah, I fucked up. My back's against the wall, and you got to help me. Otherwise, you're going to be implicated too, and you're going to get killed." So Albert Brooks just kind of nonchalantly, just small movement, just kind of motions over to Cook, who's not paying attention, and then Ron Perlman closes his eyes and then just sort of nods really quick, and then. Albert Brooks springs into action and kills that motherfucker. <laughs> First, uh, fork in the eyeball. Yeah. Like, just to slow him down. And then knife yeah. right through the... Right through you the see, and, you uh, see how vicious he really is right there. It's like, wow. Okay, yeah, this guy's done it before, and he didn't want to ever do it again, but now he's forced to do it. I'm, I kind of think about Joe Pesci and Goodfellas mm-hmm. when uh, they've got the guy in the trunk, you know, and he's still alive. <laughs> And then Joe Pesci like takes the knife and is just like you know he just stabs him a bunch of times and that like really like <laughs> like matter of fact but violent like angry but sort of like I don't want to get my my shoes too wet right. kind of thing you know kind of <laughs> and you kind of get that same thing with Albert Brooks in this I mean he's he can do this shit he's not he's perfectly happy to do it in in his own like when he has to but he's still just kind of not but he's he's got he that doesn't really, want to have he's to, got that really you know? nice he's, ornate case full of knives though. <laughs> right, he just he just washes it under like cold water in a sink and like puts like soap on it and then just like puts it right back in there. You know, like yeah, nobody's gonna realize this is a murder weapon. Sure, yeah. it's gonna be <laughs> well, just imagine like the cops raid that place and they like find like two hundred. They solve two hundred cases based right. on like that. <laughs> Those five <laughs> knives that are in that box. Like, oh well, we figured out where all those dead bodies were. Yeah, the, the L.A. Ripper case solved. Oh shit! Uh, <laughs> um, apparently, um, also when uh, Nino gets his comeuppance there, that's where Ron Perlman actually shattered his kneecap in that scene where he's out in the in the ocean there, where he gets basically uh, chased out into the into the waves, and one of the waves hit him, and yeah. on his way back in, he smashed his kneecap on the fucking rock. Oh wow! Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. So his look of pain on film is actually a legitimate look of pain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch yeah. that. That's pretty classic. I love that execution deal. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, the idea that uh, the driver shows up and he wears that like rubber right. uh, mask. He just like how how else is this guy gonna get the upper hand? Except he's gonna outdrive them. Yeah. I mean, of course that's what he's gonna do. And then uh, just that that sequence on the uh, on the sandbar there, it's it's chilling. It's very I mean, it really uh, is very slasher movie. Like he puts on a different persona yeah. there, where he really goes <laughs> maybe even deeper than he ever thought he'd go to where his his rage is. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the town that dreaded sundown. Yeah, um, it's got a little bit of that kind of quality to the way that that sequence is shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, everyone underestimates this guy and. They, yeah. But no one, no one could ever know like just how like violent this guy really is deep down. He just, he he just sort of springs forth. It becomes a revenge movie in the second half of the film, essentially. Yeah, like once uh, Oscar Isaac is mm-hmm. dead. Um, I guess we should talk about the scene in the motel. Yeah, because Christina Hendricks is <coughs> really good for what very little she's given in this. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a very tiny role. Yep. Um, I mean, it's this isn't like uh, you know Isabella Johnny in the first film where you know it's kind of like well there there could be a lot more to her, 
this is this is absolutely a supporting role. But um, she, but I think Hendricks is really amazing. She is the femme fatale, though. Like she, she's she is like the stereotypical femme fatale that, in a other like a, a noir that wasn't an art film, she'd probably have a much bigger role. But here she's just kind of relegated right. to this sort of well, side. And and it's again again a little bit of a fuck up, a little bit of a kind of low rent right. version because she's like hanging out with this low-rent mobster guy who's, you know, just sort of, you know... I, lo- I always love, like, mobsters in movies that wear, you know, really shitty uh, clothes, and they're just kind of like, you know, they're, they're doing these deals for, like, a few thousand yeah. dollars, you know, sort of thing. And she's kind of got the tight pants, and she's she's kind of... I mean, she's coded as kind of low-class, you know, trashy girl mm-hmm. who's, you know, just going to come in and going to help out with this, with this deal, with this... Uh, robbery well i got the i got and, the feeling um, that she was one of cook's strippers that maybe has gotten a little too old for the business maybe well yeah i could see that i mean it was i mean she it's it's all in that same orbit right, right? you know and I, but i kind of get you know she's dating this guy or you know whatever she, she's one of his girls you know she gets sent along on this thing and gets killed for it in the most graphic way oh god possible. yeah and uh, before that, I mean, you know, she's she's tr- I mean, she's trying to double cross. I mean, mm-hmm. she's kind of doing that that whole thing of she knew what the, the she knew the money was going to be there. She knew there was going to be this double cross, and then it ends up there's like a triple cross where you know it's funny how the actual mechanics of the plot it's just kind of all explained right yeah. there. But it doesn't I mean it doesn't really matter because we're just kind of carried along in sort of the emotion of the scene and sort of the we we kind of know what's going on even if we don't quite yeah, catch every detail. I mean that's that's where you first really see the hints of what depths the driver will go to too. He slaps her, and I mean you know it's it's very. Even though I think it's, I mean, it's as justified as it could be. Oh yeah, be, it's, you know, sort it's, of thing, it's, you know? it's justified because it's you just fucked me over. You just got a young boy's dad killed in your little double cross, right. and you've got me potentially killed. You got the woman I love and her kid potentially killed if this doesn't work right. out the way it should. And you're going to start talking, or I'm going to start hitting you. To, to see like Ryan Gosling slapping Christina right. Hendricks in the face and then like threatening her. I mean, and putting on those gloves, I mean, again, kind of serial killer-like, you know, there is that, there is that kind oh, of Oh, when he does it and she gives that look, she knows what's coming all of a sudden. Right. And then the way he's just pointing his fingers mm-hmm. at her, you know, and he's got his hand over her face. And it's, that's where you buy him, or that's where I yeah. buy him as the, this, this guy really has this depth of, I do not give a fuck about you. Yeah. I will kill you if it's if I He's have to. He's pointing at her, and it's when I remove my hand, you everything you better you say is better better be fucking true, or otherwise. Right, exactly. How about the uh, car chase before that? Because I I think that that's the second big car chase in the film, and I think that's mm-hmm. the one that really solidifies what a great driver is. Because when he's in the city, he knows every fucking street. Like he he knows it like the back of his right. hand. So it's child's play for him to avoid the cops in that scene. But in this scene, he's in a high-speed chase against another driver, and he doesn't know the roads. So he's got to he's got to basically just use his innate skills deep down to avoid that car. And he does that maneuver on the road there, where he, where he turns the fucking car and starts driving backwards. And yeah, right. it, it's really great. I love that scene. It just kind of just kind of solidifies. He's not only just a showy stunt driver. He's he he knows his shit. Like he can he can do it in any situation. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it it's just, uh, I mean, that first sequence, the opening sequence really like sells him as like, this is how good this mm-hmm. guy is. Um, 
And uh, whenever you see him behind the wheel of a car, he's he's in this he's in the right. zone, you know. Um, I think you know, for me, I think that I don't know maybe because I had I had uh, rewatched the driver recently, and because I mean we've just seen so many car chases in films, mm-hmm. I think that middle car chase sequence becomes a little bit more generic for me. It's a little bit less visually interesting, but it is a great car chase sequence, and you re- and I totally get yeah. what you're saying about like that's the moment where you see just how good this guy really has yeah. to be. But it's it's also pretty clear that uh, winning Refn isn't really um, he doesn't care as much about the car chasing. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't fetishize cars in this film at all, and he doesn't. He actually no. doesn't fetishize women as well. Like it's it's not a Fast and the Furious film. No, no, it's not. Not that not that there's. I mean, you know, I I mean, I love I love car chase movies. I love you know like that sort of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that isn't what this film is, and I think that that's sort of the thing that um, I think a lot of people kind of on its initial release. People kind of walked away and went, what, what the fuck was yeah, that? They were, they <laughs> because were, I was expecting, they were expecting... I was expecting Ryan Gosling badass yeah. kind of art film, but like lots of like cool car sequences. And really, there are only three big right. car sequences in the film. And I mean, that first one, I mean, I would I would say that first car chase sequence is one of the best ever. Oh, yeah. just, just It's a phenomenal just, sequence. Just the fact that it's um, inside the car just like makes it leaps and bounds better than almost anything I've seen. Like, it's so... Sad yeah. damn good. Um, and it's, I mean, there you say you get a real sense of sort of impending danger mm-hmm. as well. Um, whereas I think the other two, it's a little bit more kind of generic. Okay, this is the chase right. sequence. I, I don't, I don't get a sense of a threat to anybody. It's just sort of okay. This is what the, this is what we're doing now. It's just the big action sequence, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but that first sequence is phenomenal. Just wanted to bring that out there. But yeah, and then uh, Christina Hendricks uh, gets her gets her fucking head yeah. blown off. Which is fucking in, in slow motion as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Let's 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 really like dig into this. Watch let's, this. Let's let's know, pause it and shit. count all the pieces of her skull that fly all the fucking place. <laughs> Jesus, man. Um. Yeah, no. And then uh, and then you see Gosling. Uh, he springs to action. You know, his heart rate gets pumping. He's uh, but then he stabs one guy with a uh, fucking coat. Uh, uh with a curtain, curtain hanger. Rod, curtain rod. Like, yeah. Like, Curtain rod, yeah, a shower curtain rod, and then uh, shoots the other with a shotgun, yep. right? And it's, so it's um, a great little action scene, and it's so quick, and it just it's, it's so yeah. much more effective. I, I I love action scenes like that. That like I don't like prolonged gun battles. That's Hollywood bullshit. This was just very brutal, short, and believable. And also, it's just two guys yep. because I mean, this is kind of still like a low rent little crime. Yep. It's not. I mean, because in another movie, it'd be like eight right. guys that he would. have mow down or whatever you my know. elite team of assassins i'm sending after you <laughs> they all get they all get like a little uh you know like a little intro you know reservoir dogs the opening of reservoir dogs and these guys are all coming up it's like you know i'm the demolitions expert yeah the, well know. i mean if this was if, if this was a fast and the furious film all these assassins they'd get killed and then vin diesel would be there like quipping about it you know like you should have brought a bigger team or something like that you know like, <laughs> exactly but no, instead of just being like covered in blood. Yeah, no, it's end. just it's just really in the moment, desperation, quick to action kind of shit. And he and Gosling sells it on his face too. There's that moment there where he just puts his back to the wall, where you can kind of see that he's shit. This might not go good, but I got to do something, and he does. And right. Then he he gets out of that hotel with other people's blood on his fucking face. <laughs> Because that's what you got to do sometimes. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, is there is there anything else you want to say about this one? Or 
I feel like I'm. I feel like we've we've kind of gone over it. I, I feel like I'm pretty pretty well done. Yeah. With this um, one. I uh, I like it a lot. I think I like the driver slightly better in certain ways, but I think they're pretty much equal for me in a on a certain respect. This is, it's almost like they become one film for me. Where here here's the art film side of that film that we really should have had, uh, in in Drive, and um. I just, I really do like how the music mixes with the characters in this one. The the entire score and and the soundtrack. Cliff Martinez does the actual score for it. He did pump up the volume and the limey and traffic and all kinds of other great stuff. But then you have mm-hmm. all these sort of retro synth pop kind of musicians. Like you got some older music, but then you got some stuff that was contemporary that sounds older. And I think really great choices by Refn. Like they really do kind of speak to what's going on in the actual plot of how the characters react in each other. Well, and the driver barely has any score at all. If it has, does it even have a score? I think it might be score-free. The, well, the driver has some more ambient incidental stuff from Michael Small in that line. Like, yeah. like his, sco- yeah. his score doesn't really jump out at you like it does in a couple of the other films. It doesn't have that great hook that the initial uh, little theme song for Night Moves has, like that nice little jazzy number, right. you know. Sorry, not score free, obviously, but you know, like it's, I know what it's, you mean, uh, yeah. it's funny how both the positives and negatives of both of these films are really similar because they are very different viewing experiences, mm-hmm. and they they're kind of after two very different things. But um, at the same time, I think they're both sort of I don't know. Can I just say flawed masterpieces? I would agree with that. You know, I think I would agree with you that The Driver is a better film than Drive. It's certainly one I will be revisiting mm-hmm. again more quickly. Um, I think I'm kind of, I mean, for me, the thing with Drive is I I almost don't want the driver to be in the film at all. <laughs> I just want to watch the gangsters do their thing. Right. Um, because they're just way more just fun and interesting. But I really like uh, I really like the film overall. I think it's definitely worth visiting. But if you're going to watch one, I think the driver is the one to really seek out. Because I think that is the uh, sort of unheralded masterpiece. Yeah, that's the more forgotten one. And and I mean, if if you like Drive, then you owe it to yourself to see the Driver anyway, just to see where uh, Refn was riffing on <laughs> for, for this <laughs> film. Apparently, I will mention, uh, although it doesn't seem like it in Drive, the Driver actually speaks more words than in the Driver. Uh, he has 116 lines with a total of 100, uh, 891 words. Compared to the three hundred and whatever ninety five or whatever fuck it was with uh, the driver. Yeah. Well, he's got that. He's got that whole romantic subplot he has. Right. So even though a lot of dialogue's cut out of that, he's got to fall in love with Carrie Mulligan, <laughs> and you can't do that silently. Plus, he has to. There's a whole kid. He's got to have the conversation with the kid. You yeah. Know? <laughs> oh God! And there's that such. There's that line the kid has where he's like, you know. You can tell it's a bad guy because it's a shark, and the shark is, you know, have you ever seen a good shark or, you know, whatever that line, mm-hmm. whatever that dialogue is. And it's like you're focusing right in on um, Gosling's face in that moment, and uh, it's a little on the nose mm-hmm. um, because it's clear, like, this is kind of what the film is about, about, like, can you tell he's a bad guy just from looking at him? But I think it, it, it works regardless because it is uh, this sort of... Uh, it's subtle enough, even though it's a bit on the nose, that uh, I, I think it, it helps to kind of clarify. This is a little bit winding Refn kind of going, this is what the film is about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you that I actually do have a point behind this film, and this is what the film is about. Yeah, well, he, he also um, references and, and the it, uh, Scorpion and the Frog story quite a bit, too. Right. 
Right, and then he's wearing the scarf. But, but he, and, and that's well, he, the, in, he inverts uh, it because uh, uh, initially the driver is supposed to be the frog, and he's just basically carrying all these scorpions, you know, when he's doing his heist jobs. But right. eventually it becomes obvious that he's quite this fucking scorpion himself when, when he's when he's pushed. Like, there, there's yep. one scene that, and it's actually kind of cool, where, where, where he's starting to get, like, into his revenge mode, and the camera pans down to the back of his jacket where he's breathing, and you see his jacket move, and you see the scorpion move, and it's almost like the scorpion itself is, is breathing on his jacket. Right. And it's like, wow, yeah, okay, uh, I, I see what you did there, Refn, I see what you did there. He's the scorpion now. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, some some of that stuff is a little bit. Uh, it's again, on the nose. Uh, this, this film, this film is not not exactly what you call subtle. No, 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 no. <laughs> and its symbolism, but uh, I think it's still pretty effective. Uh, yeah. So okay, so box office. Yeah, budget was fifteen million. Box office was seventy six million. So you know, three times, pretty good. And of yep. course, it, I mean, for for a little art film like this, I mean, that's a pretty good. Yeah, time, and you know, even. I think I think that people kind of saw it as like, well, it's a Ryan Gosling movie, so you know, and I think it really is uh, another another film that kind of reminded me of is a little bit Punch Drunk Love, yeah, in the sense, you know, in sort of the way it's shot and the way it's edited in some places and sort of the color schemes it was using, um, and in this kind of like this love story that's like completely fucked up, yeah. <laughs> love story sort of thing, um, and I think it also might have had a little bit of that same kind of quality in in terms of uh, audiences. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I went to go see the Ryan Gosling action movie, and then I got this weird little abstract art film with, <laughs> you know, where the, the the biggest action sequence involves a hammer and uh, a bullet right. being shoved in some guy's mouth. Oh, know? and hey, that, that really cute guy, Ron, Ryan Gosling, he stomped some guy's head into mush in a fucking elevator, too. That, that happened. <laughs> that happened, yeah. yeah. But he got to kiss Carrie Mulligan yeah, first, so, so you, you know, know. It was all... It's like the notebook with with face stopping. <laughs> Which actually, that would have made the notebook a lot better. Just saying. But yeah, seventy six million, and of course that was just the USA. So, I <laughs> fuck. I imagine this really flew well over in Europe. This probably made even a little more money over there. Uh, but I don't see the numbers anywhere for it. DVD info: You can get the one disc from Alliance in Canada or Sony for twenty twelve, and also Blu Ray as well. So. Uh, that's your best options for that. Apparently there's multiple Blu-rays of this, but it's all over the fucking place. So, right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, shit. Foreign. Oh no. Worldwide is 76 million. Worldwide. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just domestic gross is 35. Million. Oh, okay. Well, even that, I just looked it up on box office mojo, oh, okay. which is still like not, I mean, for a $15 million, like art that's film, it's still sweet. awful. Oh God! It was also released like right after September 11th. <laughs> it was released September 16th, 2011. So feel, you can only imagine that might have had a little something to do with the box office. Feel good, hit of the fall. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, let's, uh, let's forget about the twin towers and look in Ryan Gosling's <laughs> dreamy eyes as he stomps a gangster's head into the fucking floor. That's good stuff. Yeah. You know what I really need to take my mind off of Islamic terrorism? I need Malcolm in the Middle's dad <laughs> wearing a leg brace. <laughs> I need to I need to see Albert Brooks stab a guy in the belly and, and, and kill a guy with a fork in the eye and <laughs> Yeah. I want to see Hellboy with no makeup. That's what That's I need right. to see. I, w- I, know. I want to go Ron Perlman put the makeup back on. 
Yeah, okay. I think we're done. I think we are. Okay. But uh yeah, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. Oh. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. I have a uh, slew of podcasts, oyspaceman.libsyn.com for most of them. And uh, one that uh, is kind of an ongoing concern is one that I do with my free, three British friends, the only three people I know these days, <laughs> other than Lee. And uh, that is Wrong With Authority. And uh, we're supposed to be recording another episode here in the next couple of days, so hopefully that will uh, be up shortly. And uh, we'll put a link somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah. Wrongwithauthority.blogspot.uk, I think, is where you find that one. Yeah, and well worth checking out because that's an excellent podcast, by the way. It gets my fucking approval if that means anything to anybody. <laughs> the most recent episode we did was uh, Shadow of the Vampire and um, uh, Gods and Monsters. Yeah. And uh, the upcoming one, we're going to be talking about Wall Street, so or Wall Street films. So uh, we'll check that out when it, when it's it comes very, it's up. Very, it's very topical. Yeah, it's very topical. <laughs> Oh, you, you might want to. Uh, although you might, your next episode, if you get to do it, you might want to do movies about World War Three. Apparently, that's very topical now as well. Well, yeah, I mean, there's always there's always that. Yeah. You know? Well, hopefully, hopefully that will never because that's a uh, podcast where we talk about films from history, and hopefully that's not a topic we're ever going to have to cover. <laughs> I know that at some point we're going to have to cover Nazis. I know Nazis are going to cover oh, yeah. this podcast. Um, but no, I, we, we, we kind of get vague plans for, for stuff that's coming up and let's just say there's a lot of like topical issues that are going to be coming <laughs> up very soon in this podcast. Nice. And you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com for all of our past episodes. There you can find our links to YouTube, iTunes, and Facebook. Join our Facebook group, best place to get in contact with us. Find out what the fuck's going on with this podcast. If you, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, please give us a rating and a review. And if you're outside of Canada and you give us a review, please let me know by direct message on the Facebook group so I can actually region switch fucking iTunes and read your review because I'd love to do that. Uh, you know, if people want to give us reviews, whether they're positive or negative on fucking iTunes, uh, I'd like to read them. So uh, just, I just want to see that people give a fuck. Yeah. Although, you know, in, nice. in the grand scheme of things, all that matters is that Daniel and I give a fuck and have fun doing this but uh still it's it's nice to know some people like this podcast so there you go i we probably get a lot more listens if i put work into this podcast right maybe all right <laughs> well who cares anyway. <laughs> thanks for listening yeah yeah and uh next episode potentially we'll have kit power on for night in the city and white heat white heat yeah yep those two two classic noir crime films but it, yeah, yeah, and uh, until then, the balcony is fucking closed. Goodbye, motherfuckers. We'll see you later.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes and links to our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook group, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to other podcasts and websites of similar interest. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review. Please join our Facebook group as it's the single best place to get in contact with the hosts and to know what's coming up on the podcast. Thank you. Drive through.